I think the summary is that the regulatory landscape is very unclear, but when you describe our product to someone, they think that it is illegal. Hmm. It just doesn't sound like it should be legal or compliant. And then just at any level. And then there's all of this noise about the state level CCPA, RA, and all this like crap that no one really understands. They just think it's like GDPR. Yeah. And it, it does a couple things. One, in some cases for risk averse customers, it makes it very, it's a lot harder to onboard them. And like, you know, it's indirect competitor got a class action lawsuit six weeks ago. I think that's caused some top of the funnel problems too. It's like, but it was about pixel retargeting. It wasn't about the email part of what we do. It was just, it was a lawsuit that's like, like Meta's been sued a hundred times for this in the last 24 months, right? But like the market doesn't care, right? They're, they're lazy and stupid. So, I mean, when just people are just like, oh, I don't want my name brand, my brand name in a, in a lawsuit. Welcome to another episode of The Dirt, where we go deep into the not-so-yellow-brick road of growing a business. I am your host, Jim Barnish, and we are sponsored by Orchid Black, whose mission aligns quite well with ours here at The Dirt, as they and us are all about increasing your company's growth and enterprise value. Well, today we have a super exciting guest, Adam Robinson, the CEO and founder of Retention.com. Adam bootstrapped retention to 14 million ARR with just six people in two and a half years and is on the road to reaching 50 million ARR by 2024. Retention is a game changer in the e-commerce industry, especially for those using Shopify, helping brands to maximize untapped revenue and increase abandonment revenue by 10x through the power of data. So if this episode is valuable, make sure to let us know by leaving a review on your favorite platform. Adam, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the dirt. Thank you. I'm happy yeah. to be here. Absolutely. So so you've started and and, and bootstrapped a couple companies. Um, in fact, you have a pretty interesting background just in general. What What got you started into this world of entrepreneurship? Uh, I was drawn to entrepreneurship in college because I don't know, I guess I like looked around and it appeared to me that entrepreneurs had really good lives, Yeah, <laughs> you know, even in like early two thousands or whatever. I grew up in Texas. So it wasn't like the Silicon Valley thing. Like the internet was just starting. That was kind of interesting or whatever. Um, and my brother was two years older than me. He was dating a girl in college whose father was like, didn't go to dropped out of high school to like become an entrepreneur and now had this like crazy life or whatever. So he was kind of going down this road. And then I showed up in New York uh, after I graduated, got a job at Lehman Brothers. I traded credit default swaps. It was in 2003. I was there through the financial crisis bankruptcy, worked for Barclays for two years after. Um, very interesting time. But the most interesting part of it was when I showed up in New York, my friends were starting a website called Vimeo in the apartment that we were living in, like mm. a video sharing website. And now it is publicly good. traded. Yeah. yeah. Now everyone knows what it is. So um, I just watched what they were doing and it appeared, you know, like I was that job that I had. It was so interesting that they made a movie about it. Like <laughs> it was a really great place to be in your twenties. Um, and everybody was making a lot of money. Like it was like so far beyond what I would have ever, ever expected from my first career. 
But like the whole time I was watching these guys in tech and it just looked like they were getting more out of it. You know, I didn't really have vocabulary for it at the time because Wall Street's like a very, uh, it's a strange value system. It's like you come out of college and then everyone is valuing everything based upon only the amount of money that you right. were perceived to have extracted from the system and nothing else. <laughs> that is the only reason you work. That is the only reason people are highly regarded. And if it stops, you're fucking out. Like there's no other aspect to the job other than that. Uh, at least at the place I was at Lehman brothers. Um, and yeah, man, um, I wanted to get into tech somehow, you know, I had this mentor at Lehman brothers who right. So I moved to London a couple of years after the financial crisis. Cause my boss thought Europe was going to implode like the U S did. And it would be this like correlation one down trade, sent a bunch of us over there. We all got short. The market rallied. No one got paid. So I moved back and the market was contracting for what I did at that time because like there was a bunch of new regulation in the U S and they just didn't need as many traders as were there before. So I was just like, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't need, I don't want to take like a job that was way worse than the job that I had when I left, when I have like, you know, I could like live for the next 10 years without working with the money that I had saved from like the good years. Um, so I was like, I'm going to like spend this money creating a new life for myself. Oh, anyway, the mentor said the skills that you have from the last 10 years are basically worth nothing. Now <laughs> <laughs> everybody's going to work till they're 90, right? Like figure out some skills that will keep you, you know, busy and satisfied for the next 50. Right. And to me, yeah. it was like, there was no question. It was just like internet. It was just like, I didn't know what and how, um, you know, tried teaching myself how to code. Like I wasn't any good at it. I kind of had, you know, it's like, <clears throat> I can't really look at a paragraph and notice that something should be a semicolon instead of a comma, you know, just like at first glance. And I think that's like such a key skill to being able to make code work. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not working. It's like, why? It's because you put a comma instead of a semicolon. Right. Like maybe in an English paragraph I could tell, but like definitely not in this like syntax that I'd never seen before. <laughs> right. um, and then, yeah, I started working on a lot of things. None of it worked, made a bunch of investments. All of them went to zero. Um, and then started this like email newsletter app that actually worked like because we had like an unfair advantage. Like we like figured out how to basically we figured out this company called constant contact was like creating a community page for all of their paying customers that had a six digit unencrypted URL, uh, unencrypted number in the URL. If you, it had first name, last name, zip code and business name on that page. So you could just put it into Google and get a phone number back and then call that person and tell them you had a better service than constant contact and no one else was doing it. Right. Hmm. Uh, if you went, if you scaled that six digit number up one, it was a blank page. If you scaled it up two, it was the next customer. So like some clever engineer at some point built that yeah. security system. Heavy and, security. uh, you know, we were like building a product over a long period of time. We had like a really slow moving, you know, crawler that was using Tor IPs and everything else. And like, you know, got these, got like 250,000 leads of people we were not using this product. We like created a similar, but you know, kind of same, same, you know, 50% more opens for half the price or whatever. And, 
that turned into a lifestyle business in the email newsletter space, uh, which is incredibly difficult to grow. I got that to 3 million ARR and it just was stuck there. And like, you know, MailChimp and Clavia, it's just these brands. It's like, I like to say it's like selling cola, like against Coke and Pepsi, right? Like, mm. in, you know, unless you're like really niche in a really small market, like it is just, it's very mature. It's like, you know, there's a sea of sameness with the products. Like it's, it's like, there's a couple dominant vendors and like a hundred people at like 2 million in revenue. Mm-hmm. So that was the first company. And the second one came out of trying to figure out how to grow the first one. You know, it was an email. And then I heard of this identity resolution stuff, which like, you know, somebody hits your website, they don't fill out a form. You can get an email address of that person. That's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, that literally is unbelievable. Even still to me, it seems unbelievable. Um, and I heard about that and I was like, uh, oh, well, that would be amazing if I could figure out how to do that. I'm pretty sure I could sell that to anyone with a website. Like who would have a website that would not want that information? Right. Right. So took a year and a half. I did that. Um, I ended up. I thought it was originally going to be a feature in the email marketing app that no one else could do because they just wouldn't be willing to sell data. Messaging companies don't like doing it. And then people were signing up for the app, using the identity service, not using the app, saying it was amazing. And that's like a pretty good indication of product market fit. So I was like, you know, I need to like spin this out. And then it was clear on the first month that it was like going to be way better than the email marketing app. It's just like you say what it does and people's face light up. Whereas like trying to sell an ES in email marketing, an email newsletter app is just like, mm-hmm. I can't even explain to you how tired, <laughs> I, you know, it's like no one fucking cares, right? Like no one, it's like, you know, I don't even know what, what a comparison would be, but it's like trying to sell someone something that they already have way more than enough of right like they just don't care like it's not a problem that is a solved problem in the marketplace for the most part right like i mean mailchimp just did it so well right it's like it's it's free for almost everyone they have a great brand they have a great product um and they crushed you know so yeah that's kind of and then a few years later we're focused on the shopify universe because it became clear that they were the power users like by far like the big shopify stores so is it is it anyone with an online store or specific to Shopify? So we were, it was originally just a self-serve. You could sign up 19 bucks a month, get emails on your website. But like um, the power users in terms of spend and retention mm-hmm. were big Shopify stores. So... Last October, we stopped selling to anyone who is not a big Shopify store to try to like really, you know, like we figured out how to sell an annual deal to those people. Now we're trying to go after that market and nothing else just because I think like, you know, focus and velocity are like keys to really growing one of these things. Yeah. So some of the other, um, e-commerce, uh, uh, platforms like Wix or, or Weebly or anything along those lines that, that became less of a focus. Oh and- yeah. Sorry. Shopify is just like, 
they're such a dominant player relative to yeah. anybody else. And they have, so like they have like two and a half million stores. I don't know what Wix or Weebly has, but it's like nothing. Way less. To that. Yeah, yeah. Way less. Um, and then there's something about the mindset of a Shopify store. Also like they're into trying to like grow in like kind of gray area ways. And then they have this, the top of the Shopify universe is called Shopify plus. And you can find those stores, which is great because like our product doesn't work for people who have like less than 3 million in revenue. Like if you're just okay. starting, it's, it's yeah. weird. It's like, if you're just starting out, you're like, Oh my God, I want those emails. But like, it doesn't work for you. You need yeah. to be great at emailing to add inferior quality emails to your email program and have those convert. You know what I mean? At yeah. some point, if it's not making money, you will stop doing it. And like, I'm a SaaS business. It's like, I have to eliminate churn literally that's why it's just we're big Shopify stores. Now we'll probably go above Shopify pretty soon to like, you know, mid market. Like there's a Salesforce product like Magento, sure. um, a few other ones. Um, cause it, it, the, the bigger the stores are, the better it works for them, generally speaking. Um, but yeah. So this, that's a, that's a good, that brings up a good topic. How, you know, how do you ensure as, uh, as your ICP or your ideal customer profile evolves that you maintain product market fit? Um, so I think it, <clears throat> like if you're talking about us in the beginning, like we got to, you know, 12 million ARR and we only had six employees Wow! in like two years. One would say that's product market fit. We have this initial product market fit where you say the sentence about what we do. Someone signs up, they use the product and two weeks a month in, they're like, this is the fucking greatest thing ever. Problem is that half of them six months in are like, I'm not making any money from these emails, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So is that product market fit? I don't know. My churn, if you looked at it at the time, you would have said it was a disaster, like eight, nine percent a month. But we got to 12 million ARR with six people. Is that product market fit? I have no idea. The reason we focused on the Shopify customers is because we'd never had a big Shopify, big Shopify store quit. Hmm. They were sending us their friends every month, like several of them. They raved about it. And we experimented with this other set of bottom of the funnel audience expansion tools for them, abandoned cart, abandoned product, whatever solved a different problem. They're only being sent to people who are logged in. So you could just use the identity of the anonymous people to send them to people who are not logged in and they didn't have on their list before. So, and th that probably just like worked, you know, the immediate lift from what they were doing before was just so clear Mm -hmm. That between those two things, it's like, well, we should only sell to these Shopify stores. I don't know how the, big the market really is, but like, it's big enough to like get 30, 40, 50 million ARR. And then who fucking cares after that? Right. Like it's, you know, yeah. it's like, even if the next step is something totally different, it's like, that's such an incredible place to be building from. So, um, so I kind of think we didn't have product market fit until we honed in on this ICP and added that bottom of the funnel stuff. I think it can still get better, 
if I'm thinking about moving up market, I know that there's a sensitivity to privacy that there isn't in this universe we're selling into right now. Mm-hmm. So, so we, this is getting very nuanced. Basically like, it's like, do you lead with a privacy first product that maybe you're taking less cash from some people, but like, I know that some of these guys might not take the call if we're leaving, leading with our aggressive product, but would buy it, <laughs> you know, right. if they went through the whole sales pitch. So like, right. you know, I, I think it's like, it's just these products are living, breathing organisms, right? And there's like a constant feedback loop between your current customer base and what's working. And you, you know, like I'm being a dick and talking about my revenue in public. And like, now we have competitors like we didn't before, but we also have insane awareness and we're able to, you know, push from like 13 to 20 million ARR in six months. Right. That's not bad. So, um, but like I got a loom video a couple of weeks ago from this competitor who was kind of kicking our ass at this flow identification stuff. We realized they were doing it in a totally different way. It was completely additive to what we were doing that we never thought of. They were like laying down first party cookies on the server side to track and ours was entirely third party cookie client side. Hmm. So if we did both, we would like see a three times revenue lift. Like, yeah. That product just got a lot better for those people. It probably got, and that's privacy safe. It's probably like this incredible mid-market product, right? But it's like, uh, you know, it's like, I'm always like feeling like we're not providing enough value to the, to the, you know, I'm always thinking about like, how are we going to like show more revenue? Like, how are we going to, you know, how can we like give something to like way more people for free? So we just have like, a hundred thousand users, you know, and like have the, the, the brand effect from that. Um, so yeah, my answer to that is just like, I think if you're not constantly engaged in trying to create more value for your current customer base, you might as well hang it up. So how, 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 (laughs) I do know. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I feel that in a, in a lot of ways, what, um, like what, how have regulatory constraints affected the the growth strategy? You mentioned that you know there were some things early on at the genesis of the business that um, you thought this thing would never be able to scale due to some regulatory factors, and yeah. and now you've reached the AR numbers that you mentioned so quickly. Like how how have those shifted, and how has that affected the way that you guys have put together your growth strategy? So. Um... I think the summary is that the regulatory landscape is very unclear, but when you describe our product to someone, they think that it is illegal. Hmm. It just doesn't sound like it should be legal or compliant. And then just at any level. And then there's all of this noise about the state level CCPA, RA and all this like crap that no one really understands. They just think it's like GDPR. Yeah. And it, it does a couple things. One, in some cases for risk averse customers, it makes it very, it's a lot harder to onboard them. And like, you know, it's indirect competitor got a class action lawsuit six weeks ago. I think that's caused some top of the funnel problems too. It's like, the, it, but it was about pixel retargeting. It wasn't about the email part of what we do. It was just 
it was a lawsuit that's like like Meta's been sued a hundred times for this in the last twenty four months, right? But like the market doesn't care, right? They're they're lazy and stupid. So <laughs> I mean, when just people are just like, oh, I don't want my name brand my brand name in a in a lawsuit. Um, but like, what this is a gray area fringe market, right? Yeah. What it the burden is that risk averse customers won't use it until there's a lot of education done and um you know it's a lot harder to get capital which is good and bad because it'll make it harder to sell like you really have to have understanding from an investor acquirer that the trade-off that you are making is you need to understand this risk very well acknowledge that it's a risk and appreciate the fact that since you're taking this risk you're going to have better unit economics than if it were not there because there would be a ton of other competitors bidding up the channel. Right. So that's the flip side. It's awesome. Like I have spent hundreds of hours with privacy attorneys. I am so confident that the end game of all of this is just more banners on the bottom of people's sites, explaining in more detail what's happening with the cookies and getting people to accept. That is what these States want. They're not saying don't track people. They're saying you need to inform the consumer if they're being tracked. Right. So that's going to be the end game. I get it because I've done the work. Everybody who thinks it's going to be illegal has not. Right. Investors largely are kind of too lazy. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. It's one thing, even if they did do the work, their LPs would be so pissed off if this like tale of something, you know, we're entrepreneurs, like you can get shut down for a million fucking reasons, right? Like, it, you could just wake up one day and it could all be gone, right? Like that's probably a little higher for my business than anybody else's, but like it is certainly not <laughs> indicative of Level you know the competitive landscape, right? Like so we got to we basically as a result of this got to scale to 20 million ARR with zero direct competitors, which is incredible. And then now that people are popping up we're already spending a million dollars a month on sales and marketing and we have this great brand, great domain. And, you know, we're, we're just, we're improving our product very quickly. Like we just have a lot of resources. I would be afraid if growbot.com who popped up as a competitor in the last, you know, six weeks, if I thought he could go out and raise a hundred million dollars to compete against us, I think there's a 0% chance of that. He yeah. might be able to get like a couple million bucks, maybe, but like, he may not need to, cause he's sort of also just, you know, undercutting us and, you know, maybe he doesn't want to create a unicorn. He's just trying to like, you know, have a little cash flow business, which this would be a great one. Right. Like, so, so yeah, I think that's, that's like the plus and minus of, of dealing with an uncertain regulatory environment. Like there's companies actively <laughs> marketing fear. Yeah. Right. Like in no information, which creates this dynamic where, it's a headwind in some ways, but like the beauty of being the only game in town, it's like, dude, we have like a 60% close rate, 30 day sales cycle on a 20 K CV. It's like, you don't get that if people are checking around and trying to like compare vendors to pick a solution. It just doesn't right. work like that. Like, so, so where do you see all this, uh, all this heading over the coming years? My company or yeah. the regulation? Yeah, your company first and then and then regulation. Yeah, like regulation I'm not, you know, like I said the regulation I said before, I just think it ends with more consent and more, you know, conspicuous sort of like description of what's going on. Uh 
with my company, you know, I have two kind of like egotistical thing or like ego, like I would love to bootstrap a hundred million ARR somehow. Like I'm not totally sure. I thought the TAM is unclear with the Shopify thing. It's just, you know, I've thought it's big, small in the middle. I don't know. Uh, and then all the vendors selling in this ecosystem are just getting hammered right now. So it's like unclear, like why? Cause the merchants aren't really hurting, but like, you know, I don't know. I would love to bootstrap a hundred million ARR. Not many companies have in SaaS. Probably three, maybe, I don't know, four. Um, that would be an elite club to be a part of. Uh, and, you know, we may have to like do a B2B product or something to like get there, but that'd be great. I would love to, I like really admire these category dominating apps. Like for instance, Clavio, they like, it looked like the game had been won with MailChimp. And these guys mm-hmm. showed up and now they have like 80% or 90% market share in the Shopify universe. Unbelievable. Um, so, I mean, that, those are, those are kind of like the ambitious global dominating. Where does it all end up? Um, I mean, I think, I think it probably ends up being a valuable business, right? It's like, I mean, it's getting to the point where, especially if you're able to like diversify the revenue story away from the sensitivity that we're talking about. We're like literally the only thing that the investor is signing up for is this like trade. Like I'll take the compliance risk for the economics. Um, You know, I think it's like, there's much less data privacy sensitivity in B2B. If we can get a good product going in that space, it's like something along the lines of like on your website intent down to the individual plus some, you know, a third party intent product that's easier to buy than the intent products out there right now. Um, that's like everybody I've spoken to. They've been like, that's very interesting. Tell me when I can be a beta tester, you know? Like, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm 42. I'm getting a lot of energy from it. Like, you know, if it would be great to create a big company, it would be great to, you know, find a home for this. That is another company. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just hard to say when, the, the tr- it's like, I thought it was going like this. Then it looked like it's going like this. And then, uh, you know, it's like the trajectory has been very strange the last six months because of, you know, what we've done in macro and like the whole thing. It's like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'll probably be a lot better answer for that in like a year. No, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fine <laughs> answer for now. It's, it's, it's good, but I, I will probably hit you up again in a year and, and ask you for it. See so. where we're at. Yeah. yeah. So, um, hopefully we haven't gone backwards. That would be a big problem. I'm sure you won't. I'm sure you won't. Um, so, so let's, uh, let's switch gears here for a second. Um, one of the things, uh, when we first got introduced that, um, that I thought was really cool was the way that, um, you know, you kind of go against the grain in a lot of ways in terms of knowing when to go for it and when not to, it's not always a data driven decision. Sometimes it's just a tough decision, go with your gut type thing. And, and that, that resonates with me because that's one of my core tenants. Um, and so I just, you know, the question I guess is, do you have any certain times, uh, that you can remember where you had to make a really tough decision about whether to go for something or, or not? Um, and maybe the gut didn't match up with what the data initially said. And how did you navigate that, that type of situation? I mean, we kind of just did something like that in October. We hired 50 people in like 
you know, before that I was making a lot of money <laughs> and a lot of people before me have gone from making a lot of money to trying to scale a company and being in a worse situation at the end of it than they were at the beginning. Yeah. So, uh, but like, you know, I sort of, I found this guy who had a lot of experience creating very large and successful data companies named Santosh. And I kind of put all my faith in him. And at the time our turn sucked, you know, we had to like figure out how to sell an annual deal. We had to hire 50 people, you know, it's all of this stuff that, uh, I literally thought it was impossible for us to sell an annual deal with our current product. We tried before. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think in a strange way, it's like just the call to adventure is, yeah, you know, like it's just gives you meaning in life and is rewarding. And, you know, now we'll, we'll see what happens, you know, <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, the, I navigated it in the classic hero's journey with the help of this, you know, wizard who I sort of met along the way. Yeah. And, um, any, any times when, um, you know, you've, you've gone with that, but maybe it didn't pay off the way you had hoped it would, or, um, or maybe the opposite, you decided to hold back on not doing the decision and it turned out to be the right one. I mean, I can think of, uh, so what comes to mind was like, before I found this guy who was the wizard, um, I was in this kind of consulting relationship with another very senior person who was going to leave his job and come full time or whatever. And, uh, I was like, I sent him an, you know, I sent him an offer letter. I was like sort of apprehensive, but like kind of all in at the same time, you know, like this guy's going to make it work. What's the worst that can happen? Uh, and then finally I had to like call it off because, you know, it just, we had a major communication problem <laughs> to put it lightly. Uh, and it just wasn't working, but like I did, I, I had a contract renegotiation with him. He was, he works at, you know, someone we do business with. And it was just so painful that like, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cause like, if it would have gotten, it was like almost at the goal line. And then if it would, gets across the goal line, someone that senior, like you give them at least some amount of time, right? Like, right. I don't even like a long amount, right? Like, a, I right. don't know, you gotta give six months for it to get, I don't know, a year for it to get really bad or whatever. I don't even know. Um, but yeah, that, that's the one that like really comes to mind. I don't know. I, my brain doesn't really it's hard for me to think about things that I haven't done for some reason. Yeah. It's hard for me to like recall that. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I just try everything. I have no idea. Well, you just, or you just throw it in the back and, and yeah. move forward. Right. Yeah. yeah. So what, you know, we, what, what advice do you have for other business owners, other entrepreneurs, um, about knowing when to take risks of their own and, and maybe when to hold back or probably not hold back, uh, focus on the when to take risks part of that. My personal opinion is that you kind of like always have to be tr doing experience experiments that are going to be your next like S curve, like your next exponential yeah. 
you know, doing those with as little resources as humanly possible and as little commitment and as little attention from like the mothership that's actually working, like becoming a master at doing that, I think is like the advice that I would have. As an example, this B2B product we're talking about, like we were figuring out a way to try to build it into our system and we're hiring an engineering team right now. And Tate's just like, dude, it's going to take six months for this person to even understand enough to build something on top of this. Like literally start debugging. It's going to take six months. And it's like, well, we can't really build a new website because we need this one piece of technology and the other one. If we could build a new website, it would be much faster than that. And then I was talking to Santos, my COO about it. And I'm like, is there a way we could provide this service literally with like a team of VAs in Philippines? And like the customer would never know. It's just, we create the account for them. It's called retention.com B2B intent. And like they get sent a script, they installed on their site. And then like the VA is like going through our user interface, matching those emails to LinkedIn profiles and business emails, compiling the other third-party intent data and just sending them a file every day. He's like, yeah, we can do that. It's like, that's like a, it's like, it's going to take no one's attention, but ours, you know, it's a super lightweight way to validate whether our thesis is correct. That like, it would be disruptive to go under the current intent data market. And like, you know, people actually want this intent signal coming off their pricing page or whatever to hit into their CRM. Um, so yeah, trying to do experiments as lean as possible expending as little tech resources as possible until you have a strong signal back is, is kind of like, I guess the answer is you always need to be taking risk in my opinion. It's just yeah. how you do it, right? Like how you do it in a way to where, you know, if it pays off, it pays off a thousand X. If it doesn't, which it probably won't like, you know, you lost some time, right? Like, but not sort of attention with what's working. Yeah, sure, sure. Totally get it. Um, I uh, I got one one last kind of set of questions, I guess, before we go into the founder five for today. So um, it's it's around a topic that uh, I think you had um, uh, a lot of, uh, or at least a couple of stories of from your last company and maybe even one from this one as well um, around kind of dismantling sales organizations or you know when it's not scaling or it's not doing what it should be you know totally re-engineering the sales function um and and the question is um you know first off can you just share a challenge that you faced uh while scaling a sales team and how you overcame it yeah i mean well look i think what you're referring to is like i had i think i had like 30 person kind of boiler room type operation in my last company. I thought we had a bunch more leads coming in, like another million. They didn't work once I got everybody calling them. But we had, you know, we had a business. We had 3 million of subscription revenue. The business was like break even with all the people. It's like, well, what do you do? Like, no yeah. one's picking up the phone. It's like, you just have to cut. You have to cut the thing, you, you know. Like, I basically, it was like, if you're standing in this room, you don't have a job anymore. Like I fucked up this, that, the other, um, it was terrible, yeah. but like, it's, it's, it's hard, man. Like, I don't know. Like I, I we might've just done it now. Like, 
there's this macro change that occurred over the last couple of months in the market that we sell into. We were we hired people in December and like after a week of training, they were closing 80% of the deals with like a seven day close sales cycle. It's like, wow. but then once they're all trained up and fully productive, they're a quarter, you know what I mean? It's like the customers stopped buying. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I don't know. It's like, if it turns, my company's the right size. If it doesn't pick up for him here, the only problem that I have is like, we have way, way too many people. So it's like, right. it's fairly easy to solve in, in the United States. Like, um, so yeah, I mean, look, you just, it's, it's, unfortunately, none of us have a crystal ball and, uh, you know, you got to do what's right by the business to survive and, and stay alive. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It can be very confusing. There's no there's no cheat code. No, there isn't. There isn't. There isn't no cheat code. All right. Um, let's hop into the founder five to close us off today. So uh first question is uh the top metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on. Um I am so this is technical, but it's the most important one for us. It's like we do a 12 month deal with a 60 day out and the 60 day opt out rate is what's most important for me right now. Mm -hmm. Keeping that as low as possible, rolling people into a, their contract revenue. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Is that, and real, real quick, you know, part B to that, has that had a major influence on churn? So like we don't call it churn, because they haven't hit the contract period yeah. yet, but it slow. It's a headwind when it's higher than you want it to be. It's like post sixty day retention, right? Like it's yeah, kinda... yeah, yeah. It's 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 just it's like a paid trial. Yeah. Conversion. Conversion. So right. when the conversion rate is much lower than you were expecting, everything sucks. When it's much higher than you were expecting, everything's great, right? So, right. Um, if. The, if the conversion rate is lower off of a high base of closes 60 days prior, exactly as your pipeline freezes up, then you're getting the double whammy. You're getting it from both ends, which like is kind of what happened to, to yeah. us in this beautiful period. Um, so, yeah. All right. Next one. Uh, top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. Um, so... I'm going to say this thing and it's kind of like, it will be an answer to another question you're going to ask me also. <laughs> but like, I think that being in a position of financial freedom as a growth stage company is so powerful yet so rare. Um, like it either kind of comes one or two ways. You're like very cash flow positive in a founder led business, or you have taken VC and you have like so far exceeded their expectations with a profitable business that they're just like leaving you alone. Yeah. You know, they didn't want any part of it, but I think it allows you to be experimental in the way necessary that you like, you know, need to be to like create like a massive, massive deal. I'm not there yet. I'm like trying, you know, Financial freedom is like six, two months away, but like large company is several years. Yeah. 
Yeah, cool. I'm assuming the uh, the question that's going to have the same answer is the piece of advice that counters traditional wisdom. Be profitable. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> in tech, right? Like, yeah. you know, make more money than you spend is like not a thing that people yeah. value very much. Uh, I kind of get it, but like at the same time. It's man. shifting back to. Yeah, to, it's uh, shifting back, but like, I don't know. It's like. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I it's, hear you. All right. Um, uh, next one is a, a favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow as a founder. So my favorite book about starting startups is um, Four Steps to the Epiphany. I think it's by Steve Blank. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Every time I create a new product, I read it again. What about maybe not a feature, but like a total, it's just, he has, it's like the guy who wrote the lean startup took this method and like converted it into, it's like a textbook and he like converted it into a more digestible way. But it's like, the idea is like at the same time you're developing a product, you're developing your customers, right? you know, and if the customers don't want the product you're building, you don't change the features to meet their demand. You fucking start over. <laughs> right. right, <laughs> you know? right. What, what about for those a little later in their journey? Um, I think the hard thing about hard things is like a really good, you know, book about yeah. this kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. All right. Uh, last one. What is, uh, what is going to be the title of your autobiography? We're going to call it all in <laughs> all in just like the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Exactly. Nice, man. I love it. All right. Well, you've given a ton to our listeners today. So time for a little bit of self-promotion. How can those listening help you out? Yeah. So I'm just doing a lot on LinkedIn. Um, Adam Robinson, retention.com. Uh, I've got this docu-series I'm making called Billion Dollar Challenge, which is like 10 minutes a week. Uh, and I'm, it's, it's like basically me building in public and like, you know, the little story arcs that happen as you're like trying to, you know, do it and stuff breaks and you do great and you do shitty and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you can email me at adam at retention.com if you want. I'll hit you back. Awesome, dude. Adam, this has been uh, this has been a blast. If you found value uh, in this conversation today, please do take a moment to post about it on social. Follow Adam, hit up his new docuseries. It's, it's going to be awesome. So um, thanks again for joining us on The Dirt. And Adam, take care, man. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.